don't feel so good. Hello and welcome to the Poison Cast, a podcast dedicated to explaining the deadly science behind toxins, venoms, and chemicals. My name is Scott Barnett, and I'm a PhD candidate in cell molecular pharmacology and physiology at the University of Nevada School of Medicine. Okay, so both this week and next week, we're going to learn about poisons that people intentionally put into their bodies, as weird as that sounds. This week is going to be the pufferfish, and next week's we're, next week we're going to talk about Botox, or botulinum toxin. On a side note, in the following weeks, we're going to have lots of other cool poisons to talk about, like Agent Orange, Nightshade, Poison Mushroom, Sarin Gas, and so many more, and I really look forward to it, so I hope you guys stick around in the coming months, weeks, whatever it happens to be. My production team consists solely of myself and an 18-pound Maine Coon cat, so I can only put these shows out so fast, but we really thank you for your input, and by we, I mean I. I'm not some crazy cat person that thinks that he can talk or understand me, Um, but the fact of the matter is, is we're very grateful for you listening, and please send us your comments. You can follow us on Twitter. We are at PoisonCast, or send us an email, info at thepoisoncast.com. Tell me what you want to hear about. Plenty of people have done that already. I'm very excited, and we will continue to listen to your suggestions, and by we, I mean I. And the last thing I'll say as a reminder, if you're new to the show and this is your first episode, the show's broken into two tiers. The first tier is a background and a really nice basic understanding of what the pufferfish is and how it's going to kill you ultimately. The second half of the show, which you don't have to listen to if you don't want to, it is all about the in-depth uh, crazy molecular biology, the real science behind the poison within the, the pufferfish here. All righty then. So the pufferfish. The pufferfish is also known as a blowfish or a toadfish, although I've never heard of them referred to as those, but apparently the internet tells me it is so. They can grow up to two feet long, which is really big, and uh, are most notably known for their ability to puff up very rapidly and for the diabolically potent toxin that they excrete, which is really why we're here today. So speaking of the puffing up, I'd be remiss not to talk about this a little bit. It's, It's really cool. Have you ever wondered how they do that? How they go from just being a normal looking fish to a big giant beach ball? What they do is the fish flexes a very large muscle in its mouth at the base of what they call the oral valve, which is basically just like a little open closed valve that goes down to the stomach. And it sucks in a massive amount of seawater into its stomach. It's, it's that simple. It sucks in so much water that its stomach expands up to a hundredfold during this process. Now, this is possible for the pufferfish, unlike most fish, because the pufferfish doesn't have any ribs, which is nice because it doesn't have to break them to do this, and because its stomach is pleated like a skirt. It's got all these ripples and folds so that it can expand quite a bit. To compare this to humans, if you want an analogy here, if you gorged yourself, your best case scenario is you could take somewhere between two and four liters of fluids into your stomach, and that's being generous. So if we just say, on average, you could take in three liters in a best case scenario of fluid into your stomach, it would be the equivalent of 300 liters of water because your stomach would expand a hundredfold, which is roughly 80 gallons. If you are an American or English person who speaks in gallon terms, which I do, 80 gallons, that is more than an entire bathtub full of water. A bathtub is like 65 gallons. So that's a pretty amazing feat all by itself. But if the puffing up by itself and putting all those spines out uh, is not a deterrent enough, of course, they have the poison here. So it's got two really cool options to deter predators. 
Now, the reason most of us know about the pufferfish is because of folklore surrounding its consumption, really. In Japan, pufferfish is known as fugu. Uh, if you've heard the term, it's meaning pufferfish here. And if you are adventurous enough uh, to go about trying to eat it, it's going to cost you about $20 to $50 a serving. You don't get the whole fish. You're going to get a few pieces. But chances are, after you hear this, a few pieces will be fine. Historically, the dangers of eating this fish they really can't be overstated. You, depending on the skill of the chef, uh, it really is the equivalent of culinary Russian roulette. In 1958 alone, which is the deadliest year on record for fugu, 176 people in Japan died from eating one type of food. From 1974 to 1983, which is a nine-year nine period, 646 cases of fugu poisoning were... were, were um, were recorded and there were 179 fatalities. Estimates are as high as 200 cases per year currently with mortality approaching 50%. This is, you must really want some fish to try this. It had become such a problem um, that the Ministry of Defense, uh, or excuse me, the Japan Ministry of Health and Welfare had published guidelines for preparing pufferfish in 1983 to help mitigate the problem. And what they did largely worked and had good years. It's not quite quite as bad as it used to be. Between 2002 and 2006, there were 166 incidences uh, with a total number of 223 patients. So I'm guessing a couple people were eating together. And the number of deaths were just 13. Now, it's still three or four a year. It's a lot better than 176. But this this is still being consumed, and it's still um, it's still killing people. So so that's something to to keep in mind here. To understand the pufferfish's poison, I'm going to explain a little bit of background about where this fish comes from, just because it's interesting. So channel your inner high school biology student for a moment here, and let's try to remember some biological taxonomy, uh, taxonomy, which is that tree of life. At the very top, if you think back, you have the domain. And this really splits all of life on the Earth into two planets, technically three, but who's counting? Uh, I don't like Archaea. Uh, side note. So those two piles that I'm talking about are bacteria in one pile and everything else in the second pile. And if we stopped there, that wouldn't be very useful. So what happens is the tree just keeps branching out and there's more and more specific, specific groups of, of classification of organisms into each one of those branches. If we go far enough down the tree, we're going to hit a family level of classification. The only two that are more specific are genus and species. So it's family, genus, and species, and then that's, that's as specific as we get here. Okay, so why does all this matter? There is one group within the family, the family portion of the tree, which is called tetraodontidae. And this really is Latin for four teeth. Tetra meaning four, odontis. I mean, you can imagine, uh, you know, uh, dentures meaning tooth. So these animals are primarily uh, marine in nature, this, this tetraodontidae group, uh, although there are some frogs, newts, and salamanders in this class, but the most famous of which, and, and what we're talking about here today in this group, is the pufferfish. The most striking feature of these animals, and the reason we're talking about them today, is the toxin that many of them produce. This toxin is called tetrodotoxin. It's named after the family we were just talking about, the tetrodontae. And... Uh, is referred to in science circles as TTX, and that's actually what we're going to call it for the rest of the podcast. Tetrodotoxin is TTX. Now, you may be surprised to know that the pufferfish is not the only creature that creates TTX, and other marine organisms like the Australian blue-ringed octopus, which is 
really famous for being poisonous. Uh, parrotfish, triggerfish, and as I'd mentioned before, other animals such as frogs and salamanders can create TTX as well. And so the reason we want to talk about the family and the class of organisms here is that, that TTX is, is common to many of these here. Side note, which I've been known to do from time to time, my, my tangents. Have you ever wondered how we all know that these animals are related? You know, it's easy if you look at a champ chimpanzee to say, oh, it must be pretty close to humans. But how do you know that, oh, we'll say a salamander is in the same family as a pufferfish? Well, there are lots of ways to do this. The easy of which is just to compare the complete genomes of the animals. But before we could do this, uh, and because of some limitations, there are, there are something else we can do. Uh, scientists can use what is a very interesting technique technique to to see when organisms split from one group to another and to see how they're related this comes down to viruses viruses like any other organism have one purpose in life don't send me emails saying viruses aren't alive interesting discussion maybe for another show or another day here okay so the purpose of this virus is to pass along its genetic information we generally think of passing along your genetic code as making a full copy of this code uh, that is complete so this information can be passed along to make another of whatever it's going to be, a bacteria, a person, a chimpanzee, a pufferfish. Um, but viruses are very crafty and innovative. They don't always make whole copies of themselves. What they often do uh, is they... Um, they are content to take a fraction of their genetic code and they'll wedge it into the, the full genetic code, the genome of the organism that they infected. This is really clever because now that organism, the host organism, will say a, a pufferfish, not only passes along its own genetic uh, code to make more pufferfish, but it also passes along a small portion of that virus's genetic code as well. And if you think of like uh, the genome of an uh, organism as a book, the virus just randomly inserts itself like a small sentence of itself into that entire book that is the pufferfish. And every time that pufferfish makes a copy of its own genetic code, they're going to pass along that one sentence from the virus as well. And it's a, it's a really clever technique. Like imagine if you were reading a Shakespeare, you know, uh, like Romeo and Juliet. Oh, Romeo, Romeo, we're out there. Wherefore out the, thou Romeo, if I can get it out. After the virus inserts itself into the book, it might read, Oh, Romeo, Romeo, call me Ishmael. Where art thou, Romeo? So, and every time that book has been changed forever, every time that pufferfish moves along, it's going to put that crazy variation of that poem into its, uh, into its subsequent generations. Now, each subsequent generation will then have this altered text in its genome, right? To... To circle this back around to how we know that a salamander might be related to a pufferfish, we can look at those animals' genomes, the salamander and the pufferfish, and we can see that exact same insertion of that small bit of viral code that exi exists in the exact same spot of the genome of both those animals. And we know that at some point in the past, they were related. Okay, that was a big tangent. So back to the poison itself. We're back to pufferfish here. In general, most of the TTX is stored in the liver, ovaries, and skin of the pufferfish. Recent studies have, have revealed that the liver of the pufferfish has a very specific TTX uptake mechanism and that the TTX introduced into the pufferfish's body is first absorbed into the liver and then it's transferred out to the skin through the circulatory system. So it kind of gets a little bit everywhere here. Naturally, if the pufferfish blows up, it's going to want some on the skin. So whatever's biting it, it's going to get a very curt reminder that it probably shouldn't have done that. 
A very interesting side note too about the pufferfish is that most scientists now believe that the puffer pufferfish itself doesn't actually create the poison, which is really unique. Uh, instead, through its diet, it, can, it uh, ingests certain bacteria that it consumes, and the poison from the pufferfish is purified out through this excreted TTX poison from the bacteria and is stored within the fish. And uh, this is believed to be the case because if you put the pufferfish in an aquarium and you're careful about what you feed it, it no longer produces the TTX, suggesting that the diet probably plays a pretty significant role here. The fact is we don't know entirely uh, what the cause is yet or what, where, where the genesis of the TTX is yet. This is something that's, that's been ongoing. But what about the lethality? How toxic is TTX? Well, from a to compare it to a couple different organisms here, it can be up to a hundred times more lethal than black widow spider venom. And you know how small a black widow is and how little poison it can inject into someone. And when administered to mice orally, it's more than 10,000 times deadlier than cyanide. This is super interesting because we've mentioned several times that it's hard to call a poison the most toxic or the most deadly because there are so many factors involved here about how it gets into your body, how likely you are to come across this organism in the wild. Plus, um, most toxins are much more deadly when they're injected, but the chances of you having something like ricin, which comes from a bean, chances of that getting injected to you is pretty much nil unless you piss off the KGB. So, so... Strictly speaking, uh, TTX is really bad on both both points because it's extremely toxic when ingested, which is the most likely route to be to be given to you, and uh, and extremely potent in very low doses. How potent in very low doses? As little as twenty five milligrams um, will kill you. So, what does that mean? Twenty five rice or twenty five milligrams is about half of a grain of rice worth of the the toxin here. With ricin, which I wouldn't touch with a 10-foot pole, you need to eat about 100 times that to kill you, or about 2.5 grams, or we'll say roughly a sugar packet worth of ricin to kill you. But this is 25 milligrams, 100 times more potent than that. And and people go out of their way for this puffer fish, which is insane. You know, you, you see why this might not be a stellar idea to eat it unless you're very, I don't even want to say adventurous, uh, because climbing a mountain is adventurous. Uh, putting something in your body that could kill you. I, I don't know. I'm sure what I'm going to call that, but uh, it's not something that I would probably do willingly. So let's walk you through a hypothetical so you can understand what happens if you happen to eat a puffer fish. So you're visiting Japan and you didn't feel like shelling out for the $50 puffer fish at the nice restaurant. So you go to a low rent establishment and your chef doesn't know exactly what he or she is doing. When cleaning the fish, he or she accidentally nicks the liver just nicks it, not even enough to be visible, doesn't even know there's a problem, but it just the tiniest bit of the liver juice with the TTX got on your meat. After about 10 minutes, you are going to feel a slight numbness on your lips and tongue. This is called paresthesia, and you're not too worried at this point because this is in fact what you paid for. Even perfectly prepared puffer fish will cause this local numbing due to the high toxicity of TTX uh, that exists on the skin and in, like I said, in all the other organs. And a little bit's going to get on there and it's considered part of the experience. So you're probably feeling pretty good at this point. Lots of endorphins and dopamine rushing through your body. This may even be followed by a light uh, sensation of lightness or floating. 
about 30 minutes in after you ate your meal, which is about how long it takes for the TTX to get into your bloodstream, you become a bit more uncomfortable and you notice that you're going to be hyper salivating, a little too much saliva, and probably sweating a little bit more. You're probably at this point still convincing yourself that it's all in your head and you have a good laugh. You probably make a few bad jokes to your friends about dying, ha ha ha, and a little nervous inside, but still enjoying the experience. This is where things take a turn. Not long after you start getting those symptoms, you'll develop a headache, some weakness, lethargy, some incoordination. It's going to be difficult to stand or even sit. You're going to get tremors, paralysis, cyanosis, which is blue lips due to low oxygen or around the mucous membranes. You're going to get aphonia, which is the loss of the ability to talk. You're going to get dysphagia, which is difficulty swallowing. At this point, you've probably told someone or at least frantically pantomimed because you can't talk that you would be interested in visiting the emergency room if at all convenient for your friends here. Within 30 minutes to an hour later, uh, as many as a few hours, depending on the concentrations you've taken, you're going to experience seizures, bronchiospasms, meaning it's difficult to breathe again, respiratory failure, coma, hypotension, that's a complete drop in your blood pressure, and eventually you're going to have complete cardiovascular collapse. Even if you're concerned but ultimately grateful friend who did not eat the puffer fish can get you to the hospital, there's not a lot that can be done. Uh, they may try to intubate you so that you can breathe. Uh, breathe. If this is just a typical ingestion scenario like the one we have here, they can try emptying your stomach. They can feed the victim activated charcoal that will try to bind the toxin, not terribly effective. And taking standard life support measures to keep the victim alive is something they'll try to do until the poison is worn off. But in all reality, um, and while you would certainty, certainly like to give the doctors an A for effort, if the dose is high enough, uh, there's really nothing more that can be done than to give a sympathetic nod to the patient and a pat on the shoulder because they're going to shuffle off their mortar coil and move on to the afterlife not long thereafter. A side note, uh, there is no antidote for TTX here uh, that has been approved for human use, but a monoclonal antibody, which is something that can bind to and, and activate the TTX has been has been uh, developed by USAMRID, which is a, a kind of a research branch of the military in the United States uh, that can be treated, patients can be treated with. Uh, and it's been shown to reduce lethality in mice, but this is not something that's been approved for human use. And it's not something probably outside of Japan you'd ever see anyways, because uh, outside of Japan, Korea, in some parts of Asia, you're not going to find much much fugu poisoning at all here. So so what is TTX? We've talked about what it's like to die of TTX. What is it? And how does it kill you? And of course, this to me is the most fascinating part here. We'll cover it briefly here and we'll go into it way in depth here in a minute when we go to TR2. TTX is essentially a very, very potent neurotoxin. It specifically blocks voltage-gated sodium channels on the surface of your nerve membranes. Whoa, Poindexter, right? What, do you, what the heck are you talking about? Uh, general way to explain this. So we all know neurons, you know, you hear the term, oh, the neuron is firing and it's sending a signal throughout the body and the brain and the nerves down to the muscles and all this sort of stuff. But what does that actually mean? We, we People always like to compare things to batteries, right? With a battery, you're moving electrons. So electrons going from one, from the anode over to the cathode is just moving through the battery. And and that's how you're getting energy here. Well, the cells in your body, in particular the neurons, they work on a similar principle, but rather than moving uh, electrons through to send an electrical signal, they move uh, ions. And uh, the main ions are, are ions are sodium, potassium, 
chloride. Um, I think those are probably the three big. And the way it sends a signal through your neuron, if your brain sends a signal and it says, I want to move my arm and it needs to send a signal from that neuron all the way down to your arm, what's happening is, is that sodium rushes into the cell. Sodium has a positive charge. And when it rushes into the positive cell, it makes the, the middle of the cell, the neuron positive, And it sends that signal a little bit further, more and more channels voltage gated because the sodium has a charge to it. Uh, they will open and it continues to propagate that signal all the way down the neuron. So in order for that neuron to fire, it's got to open up these channels so that sodium can flush into it. Tetrodotoxin, TTX, is much larger than the sodium channel it binds to, and it acts like a cork in a bottle, and it prevents the sodium flow into the neuron. So your neuron says, hey, I want to send a signal that it's time to breathe because it would be really important for me to breathe now because I don't have a lot of oxygen. Well, the sodium would love to rush into it, but the tetrodotoxin has bound up all the little channels so that the sodium cannot rush into the neuron and the neuron just sits there all quiet. It's like, oh, there's no sodium. I guess I won't fire and I won't breathe and therefore I'm going to die here. The potency of the toxin that um, that blocks this ion channel is relative to to how well, A, it blocks the channel. Sometimes when, when toxins will bind to channels, they don't block it all the way and some can still get in a little bit and still kind of do its job. So it's how well it binds and it's also how strongly it binds to the channel. So TTX is really good at both of these. Not only does it completely plug up the sodium channel, so no sodium whatsoever is getting into that neuron. The other thing about it, and this is why you need so little of it to kill you, is the fact that once it binds, it really, really, really likes to stay there. There's a term called a KD, which is a dissociation constant. And it, the, D, the KD for it is 10 nanomolar. I only say that because if you're interested in this tier two stuff, we'll talk about this more in a second here. But what that means in normal speak is, once it binds to it, it's like a magnet and it takes a very, very long time for it to eventually fall off and get absorbed into the rest of your body and processed and out it goes. So, so just a, a takes a little bit to completely bind, to completely block sodium from getting in. And once it binds, it's very unlikely that it's going to fall off anytime soon. So the end result is death. And if a patient survives this 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 neurotoxin the ttx on your system and survives for 24 hours uh you're typically in this you're safe at that point um although there's gonna be residual effects for several days but the fact is is that uh that once it's in you there's really not a lot we can do uh, TTX is one of my favorites. It has a, a lot of uses within the scientific community. Anytime you have a drug or a toxin or whatever you want to call it, that is very specific to any one thing in the body. It's a high interest to be studied. And people who do electrophysiology, which I did for a brief period where you're actually studying how ions move in and out of uh, cells and neurons and muscles and whatnot, TTX is actually, and, it's, and other uh, toxins within the family are very, very common and important within within science. So, so it's got that going for it. <laughs> okay, I'm going to finish off this segment by mentioning something that I find pretty interesting about these toxins such as TTX that are hypersensitive for a very specific portion of a, of a protein or a neuron or whatever the case may be. By mentioning that there are two very widely known cases of animals that are completely immune to TTX. Uh, those are like the garter snake and or I should say some species of the garter snake as well as jellyfish. You can give them as much TTX as you want and nothing's going to happen to them. The reason this is is because as I'd mentioned the, the TTX is really good at binding to and 
completely stopping these voltage-gated sodium channels from working at all. And there's a consequence to that. Because it's so specific and not general, it is very susceptible to a very small mutation in the protein that makes up that channel to rendering the TTX to not be very effective at all. As a matter of fact, you can change a single amino acid in the protein that makes up uh, that makes up the voltage-gated sodium channel, and TTX pretty much doesn't bind at all. And this is something that the garter snake and, and other organisms have learned to to leverage over time. It's really a constant arms race between uh, whatever the poison is and whatever the poison is acting on. And in this case, in this, the garter snake, uh, it is constantly making small mutations to through evolutionary pressure to try to be selected for so that it can avoid being poisoned by TTX. It's, it's, in this case, it's salamanders. Uh, garter snakes eat salamanders that have TTX. Um, and, and this just goes back and forth, you know, uh, in perpetuity. It's just, it's, it's a constant arms race between the two. And I think that's a, a pretty cool example of a consequence. There's, there's a give and take to everything. And because the poison is so toxic and so highly specific, the give off is that over time through evolution, it can be thwarted. And that's a pretty, pretty cool aspect of these, uh, these poisons, I think. Okay. Um, I honestly think that that's going to do it for tetrodotoxin. I hope you enjoyed learning more about the pufferfish. Please follow us uh, on the Twitter machine at PoisonCast, as well as uh, it would mean the world to me if you could rate us on iTunes. That's uh, We get bumped up on the charts there. That's still Even if you don't listen to on iTunes, please uh, try to rate us if you can because uh, that's the largest source of people listening, and, and we would love to continue to grow our audience. Um, that will do it. Time for... Tier two. As you are no doubt very aware at this point, tetrodotoxin is a especially potent neurotoxin, specifically blocking what we've talked about, which is the voltage-gated sodium ion channels on the surface of your nerve membranes. This was discovered way back in 1964 by a very brilliant man named Toshio Narahashi in uh, Japan, as his name might suggest. Unlike many of the toxins created by plants and animals, TTX is not is not a protein. The molecule consists of a positively charged guanidinium group, uh, which results in this cationic resonance kind of that stabilizes it. And it's got a pyrimidine uh, ring with additional different fuse rings within the system here. There are five in total, and you get a hydroxyl group in there, and it helps stabilize the TTX sodium uh, channel binding complex within this aqueous interface that's there. And interestingly, on a side note, you may have heard of these muconotoxins. Conotoxins are also uh, really popular uh, sodium channel blockers, and uh, they're classified in the same group as all these sodium channel inhibitors, such as these guanidium toxins, uh, since they basically compete with the guanidium uh, toxins for binding sites within the sodium channel. So uh, related, if you like conotoxins, they're definitely related to TTX. The TTX sodium channel binding site, uh, we mentioned this briefly in the first uh, tier one here. Its KD is 10 nanomolar, which is which is awesome. It's just a really really strongly binding uh, binding uh, a chemical here. So um, it partial part of the reason it's so strong is that the TTX mimics the hydrated cation, sodium cation, and it enters the mouth of the sodium channel peptide co as a, a complex. It binds to a peptide glutamate side group within the channel, then further tightens its hold when the peptide changes its conformation in the second half of this binding event here. And at this point, um, there is a 
basically increased binding due to uh, uh, due to an electrostatic interaction within the channel. So the basically this this TTX will go into the channel through uh, a, a charge complex. It will change conformation, and at that point, it binds even tighter because of electrostatic interaction and it's basically not leaving there a better way to represent this dissociation constant is to think more about uh, its length of binding the time within the channel hydrated sodium which is normally which is going through the channel here it will reversibly bind on a nanosecond time scale because it wants to get through the channel there whereas ttx one molecule ttx will remain bound on an order of tens of seconds so we're talking tens if not hundreds of billions of times longer than a sodium ion going through the channel there a hydrated sodium channel you know with the bulk of ttx molecule denying sodium the opportunity to enter that channel sodium momentum is or the movement is essentially shut down and the action potential uh along the nerve it just ceases it can't go any further there and it's because of it, this really high KD that it's so lethal. The minimum lethal dose, not the LD50, but the minimum lethal dose for humans is around 10,000 mice units, which if you convert that to human size is about two milligrams. Um, earlier we said that the LD50 was about 25 milligrams, but it's really a floating scale when you're dealing with such potent toxins such as tetrodotoxin. Strictly speaking, the LD50 of TTX is 7.5 micrograms per kilogram, which if you convert that up would be about 750 micrograms for an average adult size, roughly between that and one milligram, which is half of what the minimum lethal dose is, which pretty much makes sense. It might be a little, like I said, the scale floats a bit. Uh, the voltage, okay, so the voltage-gated channel itself, this is the voltage-gated sodium channel, is made up of a single peptide chain. It's got these four repeating units within each unit that uh, consist of six transmembrane helices. So if you were kind of look at a cross-section of the neuron, you it would cross the membrane six different times, and it's made up of a single single transmembrane element. And this pore that is formed through the transmembrane elements has four uh, subunits, and it's clustered in the center, you get this pore. So you have all these transmembrane crossing segments and it forms a single pore with the, at, at the cluster and it, sh it should be noted that tetrodotoxin is quite specific to blocking the sodium ion channel uh, and therefore the flow of sodium channels will having absolutely it will affect that flow of sodium channels will have absolutely no effect on potassium permeability into the into the neuron meaning that these potassium leak channels that are still driving the hyper uh, that they can still drive the hyperpolarization within the neuron um, therefore you can return that neuron to a resting mem membrane potential after the action potential but you can't depolarize the membrane to achieve achieve a new action potential right does that make sense you know the neuron will will never get that influx of sodium to cross that action potential threshold of about minus 50 millivolts or so. So the end result is a is a complete and total shutdown of neuronal signaling. There's nothing you can do at that point. And that's that's why you end up dying. You know, it should be uh, it has also been shown that sodium currents in jellyfish, interestingly, are completely insensitive to TTX. And famously, there's a, there's groups of some snakes and uh, other predators, like a, a garter snake, I know for sure, that have developed a, a largely a complete immunity to TTX. If you think about how this would happen, TTX has different binding affinities for different sodium channels and different isoforms. These differences are imparted by you can determine this by different single amino acid substitutions within the within the channel and these amino acid substitutions are what are conferring the resistance to TTX in certain species tetrodotoxin tetrodotoxin resistance 
Um, it can come at the cost of performance uh, in different biophysical properties of the organism. I know that the speed of the garter snake can be altered based on what uh, single what, what point mutations are done within that, that channel because it cannot uh, perform an action potential as rapidly because the sodium permeability has changed with these different ones. But it's better to be alive a and a little bit slower, I suppose, than to eat something with TTX and die. So it's uh, kind of for the good of, you know more good than evil and at the end of the day if you're kind of in an arms race with a predator and prey to keep up you know you're it's going to continue indefinitely the ttx will continue to make mutations to itself to 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 kind of counteract all these changes that these organisms are doing to protect themselves against the tdx so you know, I think that's going to do it. It's kind of a short tier two today, but nonetheless, a lot of fun. Um, stay tuned to the next episode where we're going to delve into our, our first true bacteria here, the botulinum toxin. Interestingly, TTX uh, in the pufferfish is is secreted from a bacteria, and it's concentrated by the pufferfish. At least that's, that's what the science is looking like, it's going to say. And in the botulinum toxin, uh, it is secreted by a bacteria itself, and it works in a similar manner. So we're going to learn some cool stuff about botulism, botulinum next week. Thank you for listening. You guys are amazing. Keep tuning in. Please tell friends. I know it sounds trite and like it's not going to make a difference, but it really will. So if you can, spread the word. Rate us on iTunes. And see you next week.